Great. Let me lead us in prayer before we think about those words a bit more. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you save us. Thank you that you give us this word, this word that has been preached to us, this word that endures forever. Please help us to hear it, to understand it, and to obey it. Today we pray. Amen. So we start the series. The, the question I want to start with is, how do you feel living as a Christian in 21st century Britain? How do you find that? What kind of metaphors or analogies would you use for what it's like to live as a Christian in our country today? Maybe for you, the, the thing that comes to your mind is, it feels like swimming upstream. That is, you fight and you fight and you fight, and yet you don't go anywhere. You're doing well just to stand still. You keep kind of contending for what, what Christians believe. You keep trying to make Jesus known, but it doesn't feel like you're going anywhere, and the cultural pressure and tide is just hitting against you time after time after time. Maybe that is how you describe it, and so what you've ended up doing is deciding, do you know what, the water is just too much like hard work. I'm going to get out of the water, I'm going to sit on the sidelines, I'm going to let the world kind of pass me by, and I'm going to spend my time, so to speak, on the riverbanks, surrounded by Christians, because frankly, that's just easier, because there's no tide to fight against anymore. Maybe that's how you describe your experience in the world. Maybe for you it's not like that, but actually the reason that you don't find it too hard to live as a Christian in this world is because you've managed to kind of cultivate for yourself a kind of dual personality, that is, there are things that you believe that in this building you would happily say, but then when you're with your friends or neighbours or family members, it's not that you deny them if they ask, you just really hope they don't ask. And you dread the moment that they might. This year as a church, we're, we're seeking to grow. I guess like we're trying to grow this every year, but particularly this year, we're trying to grow on, in making known among the nations what the Lord has done. If we're going to go and make known among the nations what the Lord has done, that means we're going to be interacting with people all around us who will hold really different beliefs to us and who will have different responses to what we tell them. Our hope is that this series in 1 Peter is just going to help us uh, just for three weeks to think about what to expect, and how to keep going. Why 1 Peter? Why have we landed in that book? Well, because I think it picks up on lots of the themes that are quite similar to the world in which we find ourselves today. Worth saying at this point, we're not going to kind of tackle 1 Peter the way we would normally tackle a book on a Sunday morning where we kind of start at the beginning and work progressively through it. That's generally the right pattern. But in the afternoons, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're kind of approaching it thematically. And we're asking, what big themes does this book give us that help us to understand this particular question? How do we live as Christians in the world today? In a sense, over the next three weeks, we're answering three big questions. This week, the question of, who are we? Next week, what will we face in the world? And then the week after that, how do we respond to what we face those pick up lots of the main themes of the book, a, a book that is written to Christians who are suffering in the world to give them confidence to keep going. So much of what we know about Peter's readers here is, comes from chapter 1, verse 1. He calls them God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
And it's that word exiles, I think, that's particularly helpful for us as we start. Those who are not in their homeland. That isn't just meant as a kind of literal thing that they're not in the countries of their birth. They may or may not be in the countries of their birth. This is a reality for Christians in the world today. We are exiles. We're going to dive into discussion groups at this point. Two questions are going to appear on the screen. In what ways is exile a helpful way to understand our situation as Christians in the world? What impact would it have if we saw ourselves as exiles here in this world? Dive into groups, talk about those for five or six minutes. Exactly right, that's helpful. Other thoughts? That it helps to acknowledge what is missing, um, that there is something wrong with the, the connection between us and the rest of the world, that, that, is, that that's not the way it's meant to be. No one, no one who's not in, you know, non Christian version of exile, no one chooses to go into exile and goes, yeah, it's great, I'll just leave everything and, and go off into exile. So it's acknowledging that, yeah, there is something that's not right about. Other thoughts? Yeah, definitely. And I think Peter's going to help us over these coming weeks to, to work out what does that, the connection between those two look like. Well, with this paradox, you know, we're kind of balanced, you know, we go too far that way, we go too far that way. Yeah. Yeah, how, how do we engage meaningfully with our world without acting like this is our home? That's some of the questions that that exile language raises for us. Uh, let me plug a book at this point, because uh, you don't get a seminar series from me without a book plug. Um, so this book is called Faithful Exiles. What it is, is it's a bunch of different Christian authors who've come together and kind of written a reflection on lots of different aspects of the Christian life and how being an exile shapes that. So how does being an exile shape how we pray? How does being an exile shape how we engage with our world? How does it shape politics for us as Christians? How does it shape what the church is to be? How does it shape how we suffer? All those kind of things. Um, I found that really helpful as I've worked through the, the series. Uh, so if that's something you want to grab, uh, come and flick through. You're welcome to do that. Uh, that's Faithful Exiles. Um, what I think is helpful for us to reflect on is the way in which, in the 21st century West, it probably feels more like we're exiles than it did for people a few generations before us. We need to not overblow that. So there's a real danger of basically saying there was this like idealized time where things were all perfect and we lived in this perfect Christian society and now like we're not there anymore and woe is us and the world hates us and it's the, we're in the worst situation we've ever been in. Like, that is obviously an overstatement. 
for a start, there's this place in the world where it's much harder to be a Christian than it is in Britain today. And also, it was never perfect. But at the same time, I think there is a helpful sense in reminding ourselves that it is probably more acute than it used to be. But at the same time, it's always been this way for Christians. Here's a quote from that book. Uh, the authors say, cultural exile is the standard for God's people. That is, if we in any way feel that sense of disconnect between ourselves and the world, that is the norm. It is abnormal when that isn't the case. And so the question is, as Peter addresses his hearers who are exiles in the world, as he addresses us exiles in the world, what do exiles need to know? And today we're going to see that exiles need to know that they have a hope for a better world. See that in three parts. The first part is an imperishable inheritance. An imperishable inheritance. Look down with me, starting at verse 3. Let me read some words that we started with. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. God is a God who shows great mercy to people. He gives to people who don't deserve it, and what he gives them is new birth. By his Spirit, he makes dead people alive. He brings them to spiritual life, and he gives them, therefore, a living hope. It is a living hope because we, it is hope in a person who is living. It's living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is hope of life to come. It is hope of life forever. And it's not every fairy hope, it is certain hope. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance is something that comes to you in the future. We are awaiting our inheritance. We are awaiting the day that we will inherit something. That means there is something in our futures to look forward to. There is something coming that is better than what we have now. And that is an inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, and can never fade. Earthly inheritances, things that we receive from those um, above us, our, our ancestors, our, our families, whoever it may be, those things will ultimately perish, spoil, or fade. Peter says there is an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades. And this idea of imperishability is really important to Peter, it seems. So if you look later in the chapter, verse 18, as Peter talks about our salvation, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, not perishable, but the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What is it that saves us? It is not perishable things, things that ultimately spoil or fade. We are, we are instead saved by the precious blood of Christ into something that doesn't perish. There is eternity on offer here. There is an eternal promise of something that will last forever. And the idea of perishability comes up again one more time in our chapter. Verse 23. You have been born again, that's that language back from verse 3, not of perishable seed. The life we have been given is not of something that ultimately perishes, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. All people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. 
grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What is perishable here is what is human. And Peter is saying our new birth is not a human thing. It is not something that therefore is perishable. Human seed, humanity, ultimately perish. There is something imperishable. The living and enduring word of God that doesn't wither like grass, that doesn't fall like flowers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because the word of the Lord is what has given us this new birth, so this new birth goes on forever because that word endures forever. There is an imperishable inheritance on offer that comes through Jesus. That is the future for Christians. That is our glorious future, that one day we will receive something that will last forever, that will go on forever, that will never be taken from us. So as we kind of map out history, that's the key event left to happen. So much of the kind of cultural discourse ends up being about history, doesn't it? What's one of the most common phrases we hear in cultural discourse today? Are you on the right side of history? Do you want to be on the right side of history? Here's one author's reflection on that concept. He says, Christians are on the right side of history because the cross has changed the course of history. Christians are on the right side of history because the cross has changed the course of history. History is not a kind of arc towards some kind of theoretical nirvana utopia on earth that we get to create. History is on a trajectory towards a day where some people will receive an imperishable inheritance And that is possible because the cross changed the course of history. As Jesus died and rose again, he gives new birth into an imperishable inheritance to all those who come to him. And so we're on the the right side of history because we know where history is ultimately heading. We don't know where this world is heading in in the medium term. We don't know where it's going in our lifetime. But we know where history is heading. The first big thing, an imperishable inheritance. Here's the second An imperishable inheritance that is guaranteed to come. An imperishable inheritance that is guaranteed to come. Let me keep reading from halfway through verse 4. This inheritance, that one that can never perish, spoil, or fade, is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That inheritance is kept for us. That inheritance that we will receive someday is not kind of locked up for us in a safety deposit box in a bank somewhere. That's a pretty secure way of keeping your inheritance for future generations. But our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. The inheritance isn't going anywhere because there's nothing that perishes, spoils, or fades in heaven. And we aren't going anywhere because we are, by faith, shielded by God's power. God will keep his people. He will protect his people. God is guaranteeing that both the inheritance is protected and those who receive the inheritance are protected. And so that inheritance is guaranteed to come. That gives us loads of confidence, doesn't it? This is not a a vague hope that may come to pass one day. No, it is kept for us by God and a God who has no equal. 
The reason we can have such confidence when we know that it's kept for us by God is that we don't live in a dualistic universe. If you don't know what kind of that word means, a dualistic universe is basically where there's kind of good and evil, uh, God and Satan or whatever, but, but they're basically equals. And there's this kind of ongoing battle, and the question is, who's going to win, good or evil? Who will triumph in the end? In a dualistic universe, the, they're, they're equally matched, and so we don't know the outcome. That is not the universe we live in. Yes, there is good. Yes, there is evil. But they are not equally matched. History is not like a football match or a series of the traitors where you don't know who's going to win in the end. Because God has no equal. He has opponents, but he has no equal. And so if he guarantees it, it is guaranteed. And so we live in kind of the longest engagement season ever. It's probably the closest metaphor in that sense because, yes, some engagements don't end in marriage, but, but the, the, our vast majority do. Christians are waiting for the day where we will be married, but that is a certain day. There is nothing that will stop that. And so we sit in the longest engagement season ever. That is our hope for the future, a guaranteed inheritance. And so that shapes our perspective of the now. Look down with me at verse 6. Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, that is, in our salvation that's ready to be revealed, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That kind of language is repeated later in the letter. No need to turn there, but let me just read chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Or just verse 10, actually. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Did you see the repeated phrase? Suffered for a little while. Suffered for a short time. Suffered for a season. We live in a little while kind of world. What Peter is not saying is, get over your suffering. It's only for a short period. Just grow up, brave up, and you'll be fine. No, of course not. But what he is saying is, compared to what is to come, this world is a little while world. That this world is passing, that this world is fleeting. And so there are two worlds to think about. There is the little while world, where there is suffering, and we'll think more about that next week. And there is the better forever world that is guaranteed to come for all those who have faith, for all those who live as exiles. An imperishable inheritance that is guaranteed to come. That's what we're heading for. That's who we are. We're exiles awaiting this. And so what's the call to us as exiles? Today, the call is to set your hope on this inheritance. Let me read verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you. So some of you will know, a few months ago, uh, we kind of had a Macathon training session here at church on a Saturday. 
And one of the things that was really interesting about it, uh, really striking, is the way that this lady who'd worked really hard at kind of creating Christian Makaton signs talked about hope. The standard out there in the world Makaton sign for hope is that. Or which way round? <laughs> that or that? One of the ways round, not quite sure. That's how we think about hope, isn't it? Hope is a fingers crossed, hope for the best, but we don't really know. And she said probably the hardest sign she had to fight for was that one, to say, we can't use that as Christians. It completely cuts against what that word means. And so is someone better than Macron than me. Who wants to show us? Anna, stand up. Come on, show us. Because I'll get it wrong. Show us what hope is now. Solid. Certain. Guaranteed. We don't set our hope on something vague. Hope isn't fingers crossed and hope for the best. No, the hope that Christians have is hope that will not disappoint. It is hope that will not put us to shame because the outcome is absolutely certain. There are so many things the world encourages us to place our hope in. The world encourages us to set our hope on the day where we finally get what we've always longed for, the lion, the holiday, the marriage, the kids, the house, the retirement. We're different for different of us. But the world says, put your hope there, because when you get that thing, things will finally change for the better. There's two problems with that. One, it's not guaranteed to happen. And two, even if it does happen, it's not guaranteed to not disappoint. In fact, it is guaranteed to disappoint to some extent if you put all your hope in it. Don't set your hope on temporary things, which aren't guaranteed and are fading away. Instead, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. Striking, isn't it, that that's how Peter describes it. As he thinks of the day when Jesus comes back, he could say, set your hope on the justice that is to be brought to you. That would make sense. Set your hope on the judgment that will come on others. That would make sense. Set your hope on the glory that will come to you. That would make sense, and all those are true. Set your hope, Peter says, on the grace that is to be brought to you. Because God is a God of grace. He is a God of giving. And as Peter looks forward to that day, he wants to know that that is a day where we will be given to, where we will receive completely undeservedly. And so we are to set our hopes on that future day where we will receive grace, where we will see, receive that future inheritance by grace. And to set our minds, to set our hope there, we'll take, verse 13, minds that are alert and fully sober. Our world will, in lots of different ways, try to distract us or attract us. It will either try and distract us from the things of God by just dulling us and anesthetizing us to, to those things, or it will try and attract us actively towards other things. And my sinful heart means that I'm so quickly distracted and so quickly attracted. And so Peter says, keep your minds alert and fully sober. Don't let them get dragged in. Don't let them get distracted. Don't let them get dulled. Instead, set your hope, put your weight for the future, put all of your dreams in this basket, because it is the one place 
that will never disappoint. We're going to go back into discussion groups now. Uh, one question is going to appear on the screen. In what ways might our lives look different if our hope is set on the grace that is to come? That can go in lots of different directions. So feel free to take it in lots of different directions for a while in your groups. Who's going to kick us off? Who am I going to... Yeah, that's it. The, the hope to come is not being seen as wonderful in the eyes of the world, and therefore, if I meet that, I think I'm brilliant because I've achieved my aims. If I don't meet that, I think I'm awful. Actually, that's not what we're, we're hoping in. What about other groups? Maybe one more from another table. We were saying about how the way we treat our and other people's sin as well would change because actually it's about grace and we don't need to beat ourselves up about the things that we do because it's all about his grace. And actually then the way we treat others as well, that when they, you know, it doesn't actually matter if that person made us have a rubbish day or a rubbish week because we've got something better. What I hope that we're starting to see from today is that if we're going to live well in this world, we need to understand that there is a future world. There's a song, Lingerick, maybe it's Johnny Cash, I don't know. So heavenly minded, you have no earthly good. I don't know if any, there's a generation of people that are nodding. Um, that is just not the dynamic uh, that one Peter speaks of. The more heavenly minded you are, actually the better we can engage in this world. We'll think more about that in the coming weeks, but today we just need to see that we have a hope of a better world, that this world isn't everything. Uh, what we're going to do is turn into our groups where we are and spend a bit of time praying in the light of that. So praying into some of the things you were discussing in your groups, some of the things that we've been talking about. Spend five minutes or so uh, praying in your groups, and then we'll sing to close. Uh, thinking together about 1 Peter and how that helps us if we're going to live well in this world, we need to remember our hope for a better world. 
next week. We're going to think more about the experience that we face in this world. But before we close today, let's sing a song that casts our minds to those greater realities beyond this world and our hope that is to come. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>